0: Well, let's take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2. We've made it through a chapter of Revelation. Only a few more to go. We won't make it through this one in two weeks. We'll make it through in four weeks. All right, we're going to start tonight on the letters. But before we do that, I gave you a homework assignment last week. Tell me what the homework assignment was. Do you may remember read the first church and then ask the question of what is the angel what is that the messenger or the angel of the church all right so anybody got an idea on the angel what that means it's anybody's opinion you went to the internet and did research I'm saying I'm impressed it got got highlighted on it I saw that highlighting serious about it all right somebody else said their hand up pastor somebody thinks it's the pastor the messenger guardian angel here's the answer okay any of them but here here's the thing nobody really knows because of it can be any of those and it doesn't really matter here's why it doesn't necessarily matter i don't mean that there's not a right answer there is but the point of it is that it's to whomever is going to speak to the church and bring this message to the church. The, the point is, there is somebody that is Jesus is sending that is going to give the message. I believe it's the pastor of the church. That, that's what I believe. That's what, through my study, I've come to the conclusion of. But as Anne kind of said, my opinion, I know. yes. That's pastor. Yeah. You use different words. The New Testament uses different words for what functionally serves as the pastor, the lead. Uh, There's sometimes when it talks about elders that you can talk as as an elder, as a a staff or pastor. Um, The the overseer can be seen as the pastor. They may not have called him pastor, but that's the role he would have filled. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is my understanding of what it says about Jesus holding the stars in his hand. Okay? Uh, and I, I'll give you some of that understanding here in a minute. Uh, and also, just because it had to be delivered to someone, and if he's, I think it represents somebody in person, I think it makes less sense if he says, take this to the angel, the spiritual being of the church. Take this message out it makes less sense than take this to the person who's in charge of the church, the pastor or the guy that's going to give the message, okay? So we're going to start tonight looking at the seven different churches that he writes to at the beginning of Revelation. My guess is if you've heard any extended preaching on the book of Revelation, it's come from chapters 2 or 3, okay? So Ephesus tonight is some of this concept is not going to be completely new to you, You've heard it in sermons. Uh, Laodicea, which will be the one that we end with. You've heard about lukewarm. You've heard that illustration. Uh, Those kind of things. But I want us to get a grasp of what this section does for the whole book. There are people that says, well, this was added later. That John saw the vision, wrote down the vision, and he goes, well, I've got to send this to churches. I better write a quick note to the churches. Uh, I don't think they say, well, it doesn't really fit the rest of the book. I think it does. I I think it pulls from chapter 1 and it looks forward to what's about to happen, okay? And one way it's obvious it pulls from chapter 1 we'll talk about in a minute. But one of the things that we'll see as we look through these churches is that churches are a lot like people. They come in all shapes, sizes. They uh, No two are alike. Each one has its own strengths and weaknesses, its own temperament, its own peculiarities. Some are vibrant, evangelistic. Others are lifeless and quiet some are beehive activities and others do very little churches develop reputations well that's a conservative church or a liberal church or a strong bible teaching church or a socially minded church or traditional church or contemporary church or pastor-led church or deacon-run church or committee-run church or it goes on and on things like well they're the friendliest group of people you'll ever meet or they give you the nasty eye the moment you walk in right reputations may or may not be true, but they're real. And so we're going to discover that there are seven different kinds of churches there. Now, I think what could be the most precious thing said about a church is that it is a church that loves Jesus passionately. And if you look at this study of Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, What you're going to see is that there were lots of good things. Lots of great things happening. But the thing you couldn't say about it is that it was a church that was passionate in its love for Jesus. Now, all seven of these letters are going to follow similar forms. So I want to do a quick kind of discussion of the seven letters. This you can write this around your notes or not on your notes, but just a couple of things. First of all, these are seven literal historical congregations. They existed. They met together. They worshiped. As literal and historical as this congregation is, these churches existed. Okay. Now, the seven churches are on a major postal route. Now, I have to clarify that because when we think postal route, we think mailman on a daily basis bringing mail. That's not what I'm talking about. This would have been a delivery route for edicts from the government, but civilians didn't send mail to each other. And so if any mail that was sent was sent by a particular messenger, so John would have somehow gotten a message to somebody to get off of Patmos, and Patmos and get it back to um, Ephesus, and Ephesus would have been the starting point. And then you would go counterclockwise, the rest of the church would fill out the pattern. Uh, it's kind of like if somebody said, I've got some deliveries to make at the UPS, man, and I've got to, go to, um, I've got to go to the Nazarene Church, and I've got to go to the Presbyterian Church in Goodlandsville. I've got to go to Baker's Chapel. I've got to go to the Cowboy Church. I've got to go to the Church of Christ. I've got to go to the Baptist Church, First Baptist Church Goodlandsville. And my last stop before I've got to make all those deliveries is H.G. Hill. So where's the first logical step to go? It's Here come across the street here, then you go to the Church of Christ, then you go to the Presbyterian Church, then over to the Cowboy Church and Baker's Chapel, and then to the Nazarene, okay? We know in our mind, many of you can map that out because that's the way you would deliver if you had to deliver. Well, that's the way these letters would have been. They would have just set them off in a delivery. Um, But at the same time, that's important to the number. The number seven reflects completeness, perfection. Uh, it, It means that these seven churches are... Typical or representative of local congregations throughout history. So the messages that are given to these churches are applicable to churches throughout history. Now there are some that say, well, the seven churches represent the seven eras of the church from the time that that's given till now. So Ephesus would have been the first era of the church in second century. 3rd century, and then in the 4th or 5th century you had Smyrna, you know, you went that direction. That's not what I believe. I believe that it's representative of seven types of churches that are around at all times and that we can gather information from all of it, all right? Now, they also have a very typical form. The first thing that it is is who it's addressed to, and then it shares a characteristic of Christ which has already been described in chapter 1. So that vision of Christ is expanded to say, "To Ephesus, I want to reveal this about Christ. This is what's important about that vision." Then there's Christ's knowledge of the church, the condition, and a word of commendation. Here's what you're doing well. There's a word of reproof or correction, a word of get going. Here's what you need to do, and then a word of promise. So that's the pattern we're going to follow with the book uh, or with the letter to the Ephesians. Okay. So tell me, what do you know about Ephesus? Okay? What do you mean is it means to relax or let go? It's appropriate to how they were. What do you mean by that, Miss Sue? Is, this, is the church at Ephesus mentioned anywhere else in Scripture? Where is it? Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus, to the letter of Ephesians, okay? This is the same church that Paul wrote a letter to. Who started the church at Ephesus? Quill and Priscilla with the help of a guy named Paul. Kind of an important guy. All right? Paul thought it was such an important place. Who did he send as a replacement for him a little while later? A young guy, Timothy. And after Timothy, a little while later, they got a guy named the Apostle John. Now, that's three pretty good pastors. Right? You got Paul, you got Timothy, and you got the Apostle John. So they all, you know, they can't say that they didn't have a lack. We, we just had not had good leadership around here. Right? I mean, they've had pretty good guys there, all right. Ephesus was uh, a city uh, that was the capital of Asia during the Roman Empire. It was called the supreme metropolis of Asia. Commercially, the great highways of that area all kind of came together there. It's almost like they were a place where, like, three or four interstates would come together, kind of like Nashville. But think of that on the grand scale as the place where everything came together. Um, There was a major seaport that was still in place at this time. Now, there's some discussion about when that left because there were mountains there and the rains eventually filled the harbor and so it became a place where you couldn't get in. But most people think during the time that John's writing, it still was a very viable seaport. Some people have called it the Vanity Fair of the Ancient World. It was kind of this cosmopolitan crossroads of civilization. Now, religiously, it had important significance as well. Religiously, it was the center in Asia of emperor worship. So Domitian's worship was centered there. And it was the center of worship for the fertility goddess. Now in Roman times that would be Diana. In Greek that's Artemis. Okay. Uh, the reason that's significant is this. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world is the temple of Diana in Ephesus. Now um, they were very proud of that, as you can imagine. It was people would travel to see this temple. There would have been thousands of priests and priestesses that would have served in that temple. Does anybody know what their service would have entailed? Was that Mark? Prostitution, right? Diana or Artemis was the fertility god, and so the way that you appease the fertility god was to uh, engage in activity with temple prostitutes. And so uh, Ephesus would have been the center of that kind of activity, all right? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that... Finding numbers from that day are difficult, but most estimates have it... You, most scholars have it somewhere between 150,000 and 300,000. Um, and it just kind of depends on how you count things. But it would have been a large metropolitan city. Now, in some ways, that, that can go to include not the people that were living within the city walls, per se, but like on the outskirts. Um, for instance, um, we go to Brazil. We fly into Sao Paulo, Brazil. And if you get inside the city limits, the city itself of Sao Paulo, they only have about 18 million. That's all, but if you include the people that live on the out at the edge of it, it goes up to about 29 million. And so, some of those estimates are from some of those kind of kind of things. It would have been a large metropolitan place. It would have been filled with immorality. I mean, you can imagine if the worship centers around temple prostitutes, that the city is not going to be uh, one where morality is. Thought very highly of. In fact, one of Ephesus' own philosophers, a guy named Heraclitus, lamented over the wickedness of his own city. This is what he said. He says, The citizens are fit only to be drowned, and that the only reason he could never laugh or smile was because he lived amidst such terrible uncleanness. Now, that is the kind of place that Paul walks into with Priscilla and Aquila and decides to start a church. You can look it up. We're not going to turn back there, but in Acts 18 and 19 is there. Paul believed the city to be so significant that he spent about two years there. At least. His ministry was not uneventful. There were riots related to the Temple of Diana because he was taking some business away from the temple. Paul, with... Later, he felt so strongly about this church, when he's getting ready to do his farewell voyage, he calls the uh, elders to Miletus from Ephesus to say, I'm going to meet with you. Somewhere in the early 60s, he writes a letter to them from prison. I mentioned that the pastors were Paul, Timothy, and John. That is a heritage. But it became a danger to them. The second generation was living off the prestige of the first generation. Ephesus was the kind of place where they talked about the good old days, all the time. Um, as I was reading over this, this some of this stuff about Ephesus, I uh, remembered the first time Susan and I ever went through church interviews. Uh, I was in seminary, was graduating. And we sent out resumes. Uh, right and left, everywhere we could imagine sending resumes. We posted stuff. I was about six months too late. The First Baptist Church of Grand Cayman was looking for a pastor. And they filled it six months before I graduated. That would have been, you know, I would have suffered for the Lord if I had to. So we got things going out all over the place and uh, nobody's calling. And uh, nobody's wanting to talk to me and That was kind of a big deal, because Susan had agreed to teach for three years, and then it was my turn to work, right? She put me through school, and we had to make some decisions. She had a stable job. She could have stayed in Texas, but we felt like I was supposed to pastor, and so she had told him on on June 1st that she wasn't coming back the next year, because that was the deadline, and I hadn't talked to anybody. Suddenly, I got these calls from three or four different churches, and we set up over 4th of July weekend, 4th was like on a Wednesday, so like on Friday, Saturday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I interviewed with churches, and on Sunday I preached at one, okay? then we went, the we, first one we went to was First Ripley, which we uh, ended up, that's where the Lord called us. The second one we went to was a small country church, and I remember we uh, were sitting there in an interview room, and they had the committee around there, and they asked me questions, and they peppered me pretty good, and I don't remember what they asked me. And then they said, "Are oh, you have any questions for us? And I said, okay, so let me ask you, what, what's your vision for what this church can be in five years? What do you want for this church five years from now? And there was a guy there that was in his mid-20s, early 30s, and he said, I just hope we can be like we were 20 years ago. And I don't really remember the rest of the interview because that's not who I am. And I don't think that's the way God intends for churches and people to be. I just hope I can get them back to where I was. Because you get the sense, even in what the letter that's written to the Ephesians, that they had rested on who they were and had lost, as you said, Miss Sue, their fire for the here and now. So here's the five things we're going to talk about here. First of all, we're going to see how Christ is characterized. Christ is characterized in this one by his protection. Now, again, that that word angel comes up to the angel of the church, the messenger, the pastor of the church. Write. There's a sense of urgency in that word. Write to the Ephesians and tell them that the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the lampstands. So you see the the image that they give from chapter 1, you see how they pick up from chapter 1 the lampstands and the stars, is that for the Ephesians he wants them to know, First of all, I'm the one that's protecting you and taking care of you, and I'm the one who knows what's going on. There's this image of him holding the stars in his right hand, correct? And uh, one of the reasons that it's there is the right hand symbolized authority and strength. Okay? Anybody know what the Greek word for left is? Like you're left-handed, anybody know what the Greek word is? Sinister any sinister-handed people here, all right? So sinister, you're sinister over there. That's because they thought that the left hand was weak and even immoral. So y'all have fun with that, all right? And so the point is that the right hand, that's why Jesus is always at the right hand of the Father, okay? The right hand showed strength. Part of the reason I believe this is the pastors is because I think what Jesus is portraying to the Ephesians is, no matter who your pastors have been, I am the one in charge. It doesn't matter that you've had Paul and Timothy and John. They're under my control. Now, as a pastor, this is one of those passages that reminds me, no matter how high how, how mighty I might think I am, I am always under the control of the Lord. And that He is protecting it. It's not just that He's he's protecting and then it says that he is the one that walks among the lampstands the idea there is it's continual persistent walking and it means that he knows what's happening he sees all and he knows all he is always with us watching our actions hearing our words perceiving our motives reading our thoughts it brings great assurance and accountability. Someone has said, what, how would it have been if Jesus came and walked into your Sunday school class last Sunday and just decided to sit down and be with you for the day? Or what if Jesus would have walked into your house this morning as you were getting up and getting ready and just decided he'd hang out with you for the day? What would he have you seen and heard? And then they said, well, the reality is through the presence of the Holy Spirit, that's reality. He is in our Sunday school classes and He is in the midst of our churches and He is in our home and our businesses. He sees all. He wants the Ephesians to know, I know. The word there, know, means deep, intimate knowledge. Now, um, in fact, it's the same word that is used of a husband and wife relationship. Uh, you know, in the Old Testament, he her it's the same idea and the idea is not physical there it just mean as intimately as you can know somebody jesus knows us thoughts feelings motives so the first thing that it sees is that jesus is portrayed as one who is protecting you can write kind of a side note to that he's knowledgeable there are two things underneath there a and b know that he cares And know that he is there. There is this aspect of his continual presence, but it comes in the midst of knowing that he deeply cares. That's the first thing, that Jesus is characterized by his protection. Here's the second thing. The church is commended for its purity. I mean, the church was doing some awesome things. It was outstanding in a number of areas. The Lord fairly and accurately takes note of the good things they're doing. Three things that he notices they're doing really well. They're committed for its purity. The first thing is they're committed for their good deeds. Look what it says there in verse 2. I know your works, your labor, your endurance. You cannot tolerate evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. So it says, first of all, you're you're doing good things. The the word there, I know your works, uh, your labor, The word labor there means hard toil, wearisome and strenuous labor to the point of exhaustion. Activity was a hallmark of this church. Orthodoxy, a right belief, was a hallmark of this church. It talks about um, their endurance. It's the word um, "upomini," which means to stand up under. It means that they were constantly persevering says that they were buried. They would endure evil men. They, they wouldn't tolerate them. They were active, energetic, busy with the business of the church, doing what they're supposed to do. And all of this, Jesus was pleased. Then secondly, not only for their good deeds, but they're also praised for their faithful dedication to the Lord. They persevered. Same thing as it says in chapter, in verse 2, it says in verse 3, you possess endurance or the ability to stand up. They labored for the right reason, for the sake of the Lord's name. They hadn't grown weary. They weren't throwing in the towel. They weren't dropping out of the race. They weren't refusing to answer the bell. Amidst persecution and opposition, they stayed with it. They would have been severely persecuted for their stand about Christ in the midst of Ephesus. My favorite movies growing up was Rocky. Anybody like Rocky? You know? And uh, the thing he loved about Rocky is he wasn't a normal fighter because he got beat to a pulp every fight. Right? Huh? Yeah, he was sinister. He was left-handed. He was. And he would get just beat down. And, And even his opponents would say, just stay down. You know, just stay down. And it was always that time of the fight when he's clinging to the ropes, right? And there the guys, like, is it just me or boxing refs not know how to put the numbers on their hand? They're like, one, two, and you're like, you're, that was eight. So they got all these numbers going. And he, at the last minute, he would get up and he'd start fighting, right? The one that came out when I really remember coming out well, I remember Rocky three because my parents and I went to see it on Christmas Day. What better way to celebrate Christmas than Rocky 3 right? Uh, but, but Rocky IV came out, and I had it on VHS. And I watched that movie over and over. That's the one with the Russian and the silly thing where he goes over there, and the Russians end up cheering for him. And But there's the point where, he, he, I mean, there's just no way. I mean, you just know. There's no way he's getting up. And he gets up, and he starts uh, one of his corners says, "Start chopping down the Russian," and he starts. This is going to have a point, all right. What Jesus says through this messenger is, "Rocky wasn't around, but if he was, he was. You're like Rocky. You keep getting up. You keep standing up underneath all that's happening. So their faithful dedication, he was pleased, and then he's pleased with their sound doctrine." Notice here he gives them two commendations for what they believe. He says, first of all, you won't tolerate evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. Wicked men of verse 2 are false brothers claiming to be apostles. Charlatans and impostors existed in the first century just like they do in the 21st century. The church tested them. We don't know how. It may have had something to do with what they believed about Jesus, but they said they were apostles, and he said that they're not. They were liars. And then verse 6 adds this. You do not, or you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. You might know who the Nicolaitans are. Alright. There are only two passages in the New Testament that mention them. Revelation chapter 2 verse 6, which is here. And Revelation chapter 2 verse 15, which is next week. Alright. The church fathers mentioned, all we know from the New Testament is that they weren't good people. Because Ephesus is commended for not putting up with them. Pergamum is chastised for laying some of them. In. Irenaeus, who wrote, was a church father, wrote in the second century, identified the Nicolaitans as the heretical followers of a guy named Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. He's in the Bible. Does anybody know where he is? Acts chapter six. What happens in Acts chapter six? I know. Yeah. Any deacons in the room? Here? You're not raising your hands? Any deacons here? All right. Deacons. Acts chapter 6 tells what? The first deacons. And you got Stephen. Right? Why don't you turn back there for just a second? Acts chapter 6. Yeah. Chapter 6 verse 5. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip. We find Philip later, right? Philip leads people to Christ. And then we have these names that we don't know anything much about them. Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Yeah, that's not Pumba and Timon from the, just can't wait to be king, lion king, or whatever. Um, Hakuna Matata, all right? Irenaeus identified the Nicolaitans as the heretical followers of Nicholas. Nicolaitans. this is what he says, are the followers of that Nicholas who was one of the seven first ordained to the deaconate by the apostles. They lead lives of unrestrained indulgence. Hippolytus added that one of the seven appointed apostles lapsed from the true doctrine, the deacons. Clement of Alexandria identified the followers of Nicholas as a Gnostic sect, who abandon themselves to pleasure like goats as if, as if insulting the body lead a life of self indulgence. The consensus of early Christian writings is that the Nicolaitans were followers of this guy that was first made deacon, and that he went away from the faith and led a bunch of people with him. What did he teach? Well, from all evidence you go back to Revelation. From all evidence, this is what he taught. He taught a disconnect between the spirit and the body. The body could do whatever you wanted it to do. Yeah, there was a very Greek. It's very Greek in its origin, uh, Platonic, as in coming from Plato. Uh, he believed that they would say things like, "My body belongs to Christ. I mean, my soul belongs to Christ, so my body can belong to Caesar." Now, here's where that's convenient. You can go to church on Sunday. And then live like the culture the rest of the week. And nobody knows any different. Now. In Ephesus. What did that mean? You go to the church on Sunday. And partake of the Lord's Supper. And then you go to the Temple of Diana. Have your way. With a prostitute. And say well. That's okay. That's my body. My body doesn't mean anything. It's my soul that Christ has. Now. We would think, that's just appalling. I mean, how would somebody stand up and teach that? But the truth is, the question that every generation of believers has to ask is, how much have we compromised ourselves with the thoughts, feelings, understandings of the culture at large and the way that we live our lives? The Nicolaitans perhaps misunderstood Paul's doctrine of freedom. They encouraged eating meat, sacrifice to idols, participating in immoral sexual practices. The Nicolaitans could have been responsible for the teaching that one can worship Caesar in the flesh and Christ in the spirit. In order to uh, avoid embarrassment at a civic and religious activity, the group may have chosen to assimilate pagan practices into the life of the church. This attempt to accommodate non-Christian practices is condemned by Christ, rejected by the Ephesians, and Christ commends them for it. So he says you're doing good in these areas. You're doctrinally pure. You're working hard. You're enduring. But I have this against you. From the outside, Ephesus looked like a local, healthy, holy church. Good deeds, faithful dedication, sound doctrine, yet not all is well. The church is criticized for its lack of passion. Verse 4. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Two points underneath that. First of all is we must guard against disappointing the Lord. Jesus says, I have this against you. It's almost as if he was saying, um, you're doing all this well, but there's this one area that, that, that pains me, that hurts me, that disappoints me. You know, growing up, my my dad had all kinds of ways of disciplining me. I told you all before about the number one paddle, the red paddle with electrical tape on the end that he let me know was always in play for discipline. Uh, There was a time that I was fighting with my brother, and uh, we were play wrestling, and my brother noticed my dad coming in, and he stopped and allowed me to continue. And my dad let me know that he saw me doing that so i got disciplined in that way we had we didn't call it timeouts we called it getting sent to your room but I, I got sent to my room but of all the methods that dad used to discipline me the one that hurt the most was when he would utter the words i'm disappointed in what you did while wow. i'm disappointed in how you acted Ephesus has is Jesus basically looks at them and says I'm disappointed here. And he's disappointed in the fact that the second thing that we must understand is we must not depart from the Lord and from the love that we have for him. Literally it says the love of you the first you left. Left means to forsake or to let go. They they didn't lose, they left their first love. Now, there are people that say, What do you mean by first love? Do you mean their love for one another? Or do you mean like their initial love and devotion to Christ? I think it's the initial love and devotion to Christ. Because it doesn't say you left love. It says you left your first love. The primary love. The number one love. Their love had grown cold. Their fervent and passionate love They had for Jesus when they first received him that dissipated and waned. Every day with Jesus was not sweeter than the day before. What they once did out of pure love and passion and devotion, they now did just as a matter of routine. They were doing the right things for not the right reason. Let's talk a minute about first loves. Anybody remember their first love? I'm not talking about spiritual sense. I know we're in church. I'm talking about you remember your first love, all right? Um, maybe it was, you know, a boy who passed a note in class that said something like, I like you. Do you like me? Even if you don't like me, I like you. Johnny? Maybe it was that you were a guy and you despised girls. You were going around giving your friends cootie shots, you know? Circle, circle, dot, dot. Now you got your cootie shot, you know. Because they, were they weren't around girls. And then one day, one girl you decided you didn't need a cootie shot for. You were in love, right? You remember your first love? That first pit of your stomach, all right? This is one of those dangerous things sometimes with husbands and wives. Because one of them goes, well, you were always my first love. Well, you weren't mine, you were like eight. All right. No. But you're the best, honey, all right. Here are some things about first loves, alright? You you see if this tracks with with what you experienced, all right? First loves are exclusive. If you're really in love, you love that person exclusively. You want to be true to them and no one else. Now the spiritual application for these folks at Ephesus is that Jesus was to be that primary relationship that primary concern that primary passion i read i read one commentator that i know he didn't mean it this way but it just sounded to me he wrote uh they lost that feeling and i suddenly thought of the righteous brothers you've lost that love and feeling right flipping through and top gun was on him other night top gun is now 25 years old made me feel old and it was on that scene where tom cruise is in the establishment singing, you've lost that loving feeling to you know the girl right. He was trying to, he wasn't doing it very well. You're right, Jim. but it, it. They had lost that. They'd grown weary of the relationship, almost like a teenager who falls madly in love and two weeks later is sick of that person. It goes on. First love is not only exclusive; it's exciting. Some of you have been married forty or fifty years. Some of you not so long. But how many of you remember your first date? All right, with either the person you're with or just your first date. All right, you remember how exciting that was—the butterflies in the stomach, the getting ready. I remember when I was growing up and I decided I was going to call her, this girl, for the first time. And I had, I had a, you know. Back then, we didn't have cell phones. We had regular phones. Y'all remember those, right? I didn't have the dial phone. I was a little past that. But I had, this, I had an orange, to surprise you, UT phone in my room. And I had my own line because my brother had his own line. And when he left for college, I inherited it, all right? And so I picked up the phone I know no more than 48 times to make that call and dialed. Five of the numbers and then hung up, and then four of the numbers, and then dialed all seven and hung up real quick before it rang. And then you just prayed that the phone was answered by the mom, not the dad, because you didn't want to go through the dad, you know. Remember your first date? I remember my first date. My first date was to the award-winning Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. No, it was It was not with Susan, but this was younger. Teenage, that won like eight oscars that year right no it did it, <laughs> no listen that we were in, in d-berg we went to baskin robbins and we went to the movie i was i was putting on the full uh the full abilities of diarsburg at that moment we almost got kicked out of the theater because she was laughing so loudly at the teenage mutant ninja turtle movie and it was our one and only date um but you remember the excitement that was there that first time, that first day with your maid? Do you remember the first time you kind of had that, maybe you were friends and you developed feelings or maybe you just asked one another out? Or uh, I enjoy sometimes talking to couples about that. We, uh, I talked with, I won't reveal, but I talked with Jack and Sue about that the other day, right? About how they got together. I just ask. I enjoy hearing those kind of stories. So there's an excitement. But it's not just exciting. There's an expectancy you can't wait to see what happens next. Maybe you go out on the date and you wonder when he's going to call. You go out on a date and you wonder if she's going to talk to you the next time you see her in the hall. There's an expectancy about what's coming next. Now, the New Testament talks about all kinds of love, and I'm not saying romantic love is directly related to the love of Christ. But there is this sense in this passage that they had lost the passion, the first the excitement, the expectancy of what Christ was going to do in their life. Now, here's the last thing, and it was funny. I asked the 4 o'clock crowd, what was your first date like? And Dr. George Hagen said, I came home broke. And the truth is, first love, that passionate love, is expensive, Right? If you're the guy and you say, I'm going to go buy a ring, and you go down to Walmart and they've got a $19.99 ring, looks like it came out of a Cracker Jack box, you go, I can't give her that. I got to, you know, that first birthday gift or Christmas gift, is, man, I got to do something special, right? It's expensive. Well, They had given so much because of their love for Christ. And the question that they had to face was, what happened? The story of an old preacher who showed up one Sunday morning early at his church, and they had a a gas furnace and an electric blower. And he got there, he turned the furnace off on that cold morning and left the blower on. People came to church that Sunday, and it was real cold. You could hear them murmuring and whispering, but I hear the blower. What's wrong? The preacher got up and said, "The title of my message today is." The blower's still blowing, but the fire's gone out. It's good, isn't it? So if y'all come in here one morning, it's real cold. you know what the sermon title's going to be? All right? And he said, is that true of your life? You're still coming to church. You're diligent. You're going through the motions. You show up for Sunday school. You show up for Wednesday night. You show up for Sunday nights. You work with your Sunday school class. You teach in this area. You go to this. You're in this group. You sing with the choir blower's still blowing, but that passionate, all-consuming love for Jesus, that fire has gone out. Jesus says to them, listen, you look good on the outside, but the fire, the passion has left. And then he says, I'm going to give you a prescription real quickly. Three things. The church is corrected with the plan. Give you three things to do he says all is not well but all is not lost he says the first thing you need to do is remember verse 5 says remember then how far you have fallen remember the idea is to keep remembering it's a present imperative it says never forget what you have lost go back and note when it where the flame blew, faint take an inventory and evaluate where you are now compared to where you have been think about those moments in your life to You were really on fire for the Lord when the Lord was moving. What was happening in your life? What was going on then? What is different now? Remember where you've been. When I do counseling for couples, uh, premarital counseling, getting ready for the wedding, one of the things I I ask all of them to do, and I, I don't see if they do it. I just tell them all to do it, is to write down how the Lord brought them together and the way they feel about each other at that moment. Now, you remember, this is before they're married, So it is the height, usually, on the front end of how they feel about the relationship and why they're together. I mean, if I'm in a premarital counseling and they can't tell me why they're together, we got issues, all right? And so I say, write it down and put it somewhere where you know it is in a safe place. Because on those days when it comes and you go, now, why in the world did I marry him? What was I thinking when I said that I loved her? You can go back and get that, pull it out, and say, oh, now we remember. That's why it's important for you to write down spiritual milestones in your life and put them somewhere so that you go back and you go, oh, yeah, now I remember. Because the farther you get away, the easier it is to go. God ain't ever worked. I don't remember when God worked in my life. I mean, it probably wasn't as good as I remember it. So you remember that. The second thing is you repent. That's a one time event. The remembering is a continual event. The repent is a one time event. It means to change your mind, to think differently, to say, I'm done. It's saying that, Lord, labor is no substitute for love. Purity is no substitute for passion. Deeds are no substitute for devotion. Lord, I want to return to my first love. And then you do that, you return. He says in there, remember where you've come from, repent, and then go back to doing what you did at first. And here's the last thing, the fifth one. The church is challenged with a promise. He says in verse 7, anyone who has a hear should listen. This harkens back to Jesus in the Gospels. He who has ears, let him hear to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor, that just means those that overcome, that means followers of Jesus, faithful followers of Jesus, the right to eat from the tree of life. Now where do we see the tree of life first? In Eden. What is the tree of life's purpose in Eden? It keeps them alive. Right? Right? It's what keeps them alive. In that story, the tree of life is what gives them life. Then what tree is it that they eat from they're not supposed to? Knowledge of good and evil, okay? And so the moment they eat of the knowledge of good and evil, sin enters the world, and God does the compassionate thing and says because sin is in your life, you can no longer eat of the tree of life because there is nothing worse than living eternally in your sin. And at that moment he sets in place the redemption history. Now you get to Revelation. We go from Genesis to Revelation. In Revelation chapter two, they say, when the end of time comes, guess what you get to do? You get access again to the tree of everlasting life. And it's not just it's not just that you get the tree of life, you get to go to paradise paradise of God in there is a synonym for heaven. It's a Persian word meaning beautiful park or garden. It literally gives this image of an unmarred garden. That sound familiar? What's in Genesis 1, 2? It's the paradise. It is paradise regained. The tree of life. There was the banishment of pain, suffering of death will be gone. Paradise of God is the place where Jesus is. The idea is that when we are faithful to the Lord, that the Lord will show us that our end is living in abundance with Him. So let me ask you a question, all right? As we finish up this week, simple question is simply this. Is your blower blowing, but your fire's gone out? I mean, you're the Wednesday night crew, right? If I were to make a list of the most faithful people of the church that are at the events that we have at the church, your names are on the list. I mean, you're on a Wednesday night when we're not doing surface-level stuff here. But is the blower blowing? You're doing the stuff. The fire's gone out. Do you need to heed the words in Revelation chapter two, verses one through seven? Next week we're going to talk about the next church. Spend some time this week reading again verses one through seven. And asking yourself that question. Is my fire still going? Cliff? It would have been about thirty years before. The most most I think what happens is you have Paul writing to the Ephesians at one of the highest moments of their church. They had some issues, but if you read the book of Ephesians, most of their issues are minor. And it's really a stand firm, keep doing what you're doing. And so you have the next generation here. We have to remember lifespans aren't nearly as long. I mean, uh, so 30 years later, most of the leaders of that church would have been gone. Uh, Paul's writing, so John's writing to the next generation of people who had cooled off from that kind of. uh, If you look at most churches, most churches don't. If you look at even the, an example to me is Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis. Okay. Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis at one time was the fastest growing church in America. And uh, I know the men that have pastored it. The last two men have been great men of God. And in the last 15 years, they've they've declined in, in people there. Even while Doctor Agent Rogers was still there, they were declining, and that churches go through those periods of ebb and flow. Reality, it's not good, but yeah, but people are still people. And and what you have is the second generation. The first generation was around Paul, who's around Jesus. They probably knew people that knew Jesus. They probably had heard about the stories of Jesus. You just get a little farther away, and so whatever it's thirty about thirty years later, and for whatever reason. They were still doing all the stuff. There just wasn't a, the motive behind it wasn't a passionate love for Christ. All right, we're done.